forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and napper. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and um, insomniac. And this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. But for the month of May, we are doing a special mental health-focused mini-season called Mental Health 101 that I could not be more jazzed about. Each episode is a different topic, and today's topic is all things sleep. Oh, yes. We're going to be talking to Dr. Courtney Bancroft all about sleep and insomnia and anxiety and just everything to do with your sleep cycle. And we learn what I'm doing wrong, which is everything. (laughs) I'm so glad that we are tackling sleep because I feel like it's such an important component of mental health. A lot of people just go like, I don't know why I feel bad all the time. And like, Mm -hmm. I think maybe 85% of it could be solved by getting more sleep. Well, it definitely plays a a huge component. And I also think it was really helpful that she helped us understand why it plays a huge component Mm -hmm. and what these different, you know, tips that you're given actually mean and why they're helpful and how the narrative that you tell yourself about sleep can sort of feed into itself. Oh, yeah. The whole idea of like, well, I'm this kind of sleeper. I'm that kind of Mm -hmm. sleeper, like and feeling very rigid about that. And I love that we get into like the falseness of the like, I don't have to sleep. I don't need to sleep. I'm a superhero. Mm -hmm. I was so jazzed when she got into like the social justice of it all. And I feel like our audience will be jazzed as well. Yeah, let us know. Let us know if you liked this episode. Let us know how often you sleep. Let us know where you sleep, how you sleep, when you sleep. We both use the word jazzed so much. Are we okay? I feel okay. I think this is like, honestly, like a uh, an episode that we both like are so interested in. Yeah, definitely. And we both had like came at it with like our own, like we had questions, we had topics, like we had like personal investment. And those questions got answered, which is always very <laughs> thrilling. <laughs> so stick around after the break and learn all about sleep. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> Just between us, it is Mental Health 101. And this episode, we are diving into all things sleep. Today, we're talking to Dr. Courtney Bancroft all about sleep. Courtney is a Yale-trained licensed psychologist specializing in all-natural evidence-based treatments for insomnia and anxiety. Oh, man, do we need your help. Hi. (laughs) Hi. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, because I feel like we talk about mental health all the time. And then we also will talk about sleep, but then we don't really combine the two. (laughs) It's so true. And so what made you realize that this was an area that you wanted to specialize your practice in? Like what need did you see? It's a great question. And funny enough, this is exactly how it happened. I was studying mental health and I was training to be a general clinical psychologist, almost had completed my training. I was actually specializing in substance use and trauma And because of my background in substance use treatment, I was asked to be a part of a primary care clinic. And this was like really 
kind of exciting. Um, the reason being, of course, like a lot of mental health issues and substance use issues show up at a primary care doctor's office door, right? And so they wanted a psychologist to help with that. So in my final year of training in my postdoc, I was able to do this work. I was able to get some training in what is called health psychology, which is really kind of the integration of the body and the mind and you know how these things work together. I was offered this training in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And I was like, this seems really important. I want to learn more about this. So I took up the opportunity. And once I learned, oh my gosh, I was like, this needs to be shouted from the rooftops. Like, why am, did I only learn about this now? Just how much sleep can improve mental health and improve our health in general and our mood too, you know? So it was really, really an uh, interesting journey to get there. But once I was able to get that training, another thing that really stood out to me was, you know, in therapy, it takes a while to see gains, right? Like outcomes, you know, you're Mm -hmm. working, you're working, some people work for years at a time and there's change that happens and it's a beautiful process. Um, but with CBTI, it was like six to eight sessions. That's it. And all of a sudden somebody's life was changed. I mean, I get chills even talking about it now because it is that effective. It has, uh, you know, really, really good evidence and to work with people who were like, Oh my gosh, I finally have control over my sleep. It was super encouraging to me made me feel really, you know, wonderful about this work. And of course, being located in New York City, this is the city (laughs) that never sleeps. So uh, it was a perfect fit all around. And I decided that there was a big need for this. And not too many people trained and certified, unfortunately, in CBTI, because it's kind of relatively new. It was only 2016 that it got kind of its like gold standard, um, Mm. you know, academic review, if you will in a medical journal as being the gold standard treatment for sleep. So not too long here, but hoping a lot more providers will get trained so we can help a lot more people and spread the word about sleep. Yeah, I mean, I've never even even heard about CBTI. I mean, we're familiar with CBT, trauma-focused CBT, you know, but like what what makes CBTI separate and, and different from other interventions? So, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, as we call it for short, is this umbrella treatment that was actually started to treat depression. And then because of the the way in which the theory is based in like viewing thoughts and behaviors and how they work together, a lot of people created these like adaptations and these specific, you know, modules and treatments that work with different branches of illness. So there's like CBT for substance use disorder, there's CBT for chronic pain, there's CBT for so many different areas. And then CBT for insomnia was another treatment that was tailored specifically to address sleep, wellness, and insomnia. The way that it's different, of course, we're targeting specifically sleep. And we're talking about what happens, you know, in those hours when somebody's trying to sleep, including the thoughts that they're having. Mm -hmm. And we're working on psychoeducation and training behaviors around that time period, all in conjunction with what the natural system is doing. So like what our circadian clock is doing and all of the different pieces of what makes our sleep really important. So it's a great, you know, specialized little area of CBT. But the other thing that I love about it is that when somebody is engaging in CBTI, it can, of course, become generalized out into other areas of the life. Mm. The same skills that they're using, the same kind of like worksheets even that are being filled out can be used to talk about relationships or anxiety 
So it's really nice in that You're way. giving them this like toolkit that they can then totally. extrapolate elsewhere. Yeah. And it's, it's really helpful because, right, like until CBTI, there weren't many treatments that were non-pharmacological uh, for mm-hmm. sleep. And so it's a really wonderful all-natural alternative. I mean, it's, it's almost like magic in a way because you, here you are, it's like talk therapy and boom, your 30 years of insomnia is, uh, you know, gone afterwards <laughs> with no medication needed. Uh, so it's really, really exciting. What are your thoughts on medication when it comes to sleep? Are you pro, mix, anti? <laughs> My kind of philosophy as a psychologist in general is like, whatever is working for you, mm-hmm. do. And of course, back that up with evidence, right? So if somebody is using medication every now and then, let's say they travel for work or pre-COVID used to travel for work and they you know, need to regulate their, their sleep cycles or get onto different time zones every now and then and they're using medication for that. Or you, know, you have a big presentation or something and don't wanna be fatigued. So you know, once every now and then take a little medicine. That's, I think, the way to use it. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. what we know from the research is there really is not anything on the market that is, you know, good for long-term for sleep because none of the medications that are out there actually replicate the natural sleep that occurs. There's many different like classes of sleep medication, right? Like there's like sedative hypnotics, which are like the ambient type of medication. There's benzodiazepines, it's like the Xanax type of class of meds. Now there's this new Belsomra medication that has this different receptor that it works with to try to, it actually works with wakefulness receptors instead of sleep. And then there's the classic antihistamine class, which a lot of people actually use in a lot of like the z out there. And it's actually just an antihistamine, uh, like a Benadryl type of thing that will kind of sedate you, right? But none of these, unfortunately, are either made for long-term use or replicate. So you're able to kind of like be sedated during this time, you're not necessarily getting the restoration that occurs with sleep. So for those reasons, if somebody can, you know, use a more natural technique to get to, uh, if they're suffering long-term, right, then I I would say that that's probably preferred over using medication for a long period of time. What's the difference? What do you mean it's not replicating? So like when we are studying sleep, the number one thing that we study are brainwaves. This is how we know, because really it's so hard to study. And that's actually why it hasn't been, you know, big topic so much uh, in previous years, because we're mostly looking around and we're studying what's happening while we're awake, <laughs> you know, <laughs> similar to like being on land. Like we study what's going on in the land and then there's a whole ocean of stuff that we hadn't had access to get into. And that's kind of what it's like with sleep. So when we're talking about studies of sleep or how we know what's going on, we're looking at brain waves and that kind of shows us what's happening in the brain. And when you are seeing, you know, medication use, you're not seeing the same types of cycling through uh, the various stages in the same way. What are the main reasons you think people have difficulty sleeping? Is it really, is anxiety the the number one culprit? So there's many different types of sleep disorders, right? And sleep disorders can include things like REM sleep disorders, which is where, you know, your body isn't actually entering into REM in in Mm. the same way as somebody else. These are things like sleepwalking. These are things like, you know, uh, sleep talking, sleepwalking, Mm -hmm. all those things where your body isn't actually shutting down during the REM process. And we can, you know, talk more about what REM is, but the other issues around sleep have to do with like nightmares, a lot of sleep issues with kids, like sleep terrors, 
And then of course there's insomnia as well. And insomnia is just one type of sleep disorder. That's the one that I study the most and work with the most. And within insomnia, I would say the number one contributing factor is often anxiety. And it becomes, you know, maybe it starts out as anxiety in general, but it often becomes its own thing where it's anxiety about sleep itself. Mm -hmm. And so it creates a kind of snowball effect where people become terrified of bedtime, of really like dreading this, this time and all of the like waking hours that they'll spend and a lot of effort being put in. And this anxiety creeps in around bedtime and sleeping. And I would say that that becomes a really you know, difficult thing. If you've ever had a, a night where you weren't intentionally like in college staying up all night or something like that, and you have not been able to sleep, it's very upsetting. Mm-hmm. And the way you feel the next day is horrible. Usually, you, you know, you have low mood, you have uh, all sorts of like emotional responses that are different. And so experiencing that, and then fearing that you've lost control over the sleep, can become like a huge snowball very quickly. And that's usually, you know, when somebody will call really desperate, like I need to have some sleep or they might go on a medication because they haven't slept and they fear they've lost control of that. So that anxiety is very present with insomnia. Yeah, I had one night where I couldn't sleep maybe like a year ago or, or something and I freaked out. And yeah. then the next night to my ex, I was like, I'm never going to be able to sleep. This is terrible. I better smoke a bunch of weed and like, but be prepared. I'm going to be up all night. And like, I I like lost control of my anxiety in this way that I'm able to manage my anxiety day to day so much better. But for whatever reason, that one experience of not being able to sleep really freaked me out. So I I can't even imagine what you have to unpack if that becomes a pattern because I then was able to sleep that night. (laughs) Right, right. So even like just one more night of that can become really terrifying, but your experience is so scary, right? And it's like, I'm going to do whatever I can to make Mm -hmm. sure I get sleep because the body really feels that deprivation, you know? And so insomnia is like, pretty different than those other sleep disorders, like the parasomnias that I talked about. And also like narcolepsy, for example, that's, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily related to anxiety. It's more like there's something abnormal going on. You would go get a sleep study where they hook you up to a polysomnograph and measure what's going on there. And same things like obstructive sleep apnea, where, you know, you're not getting enough oxygen at night. Mm-hmm. And so you wake up feeling really fatigued, but that's of course different than insomnia. So insomnia is really the one that picks up on all of these pieces of like anxiety and all of these really um, behavioral and cognitive pieces. And we end up with narratives about sleep, which is so interesting, right? Like we often say, oh, I'm a good sleeper or I'm not a good sleeper. Mm-hmm. Um, or I used to be a good sleeper until this happened. And you know, there's a, there's a part of insomnia that's really normal and people experience these ups and downs, but all of a sudden when it begins to have meaning for you, like it, it starts to have meaning like, uh Oh, I've lost control or there's a new kind of narrative. This is when that cycle can get to be really detrimental and the anxiety peak. Like what else can happen? I feel like people don't realize like that sleep can affect focus, psychosis, like everything. Like what can happen to you if you're not getting enough sleep? Oh, it's a really good question. And you know, one of the things that I find to be very interesting, right, is that if you are short sleeping, and this is a term that we use, which is, you know, usually like around five hours or less a night, and it's more of a chronic type of thing, this affects 
every type of age, every type of gender, every, you know, it's across the board that you see negative impacts. And it does increase physical, mental health issues, like lowered immunity, uh, heightened irritability, poor concentration, lower levels of creativity, lots of mood symptoms, increased anxiety, you know, even like increased suicidality, especially Mm -hmm. in teenagers. And this is like, this is really big news. I mean, if you think about it, short sleeping is actually killing people. And so Mm -hmm. we really need to be talking about this. And, you know, I want to share that for some people, this is insomnia that keeps them short sleeping. And for other people, it's lack of sleep opportunity. And that's really important because there's so many really like fundamental social justice pieces to this puzzle that certain SES, uh, certain, you know, jobs, if you have to work multiple jobs, you have to work shift work, or you live far away from where your work is, and there's not ample transportation, you have to cut your sleep short in order to financially survive, right? And so that's like a lack of opportunity for sleep. And it definitely creates disparities in uh, mostly at, you know, socioeconomic status. And there's a big social justice component to this, right? Because the systems that are in place are not always offering the same opportunities for sleep for everyone across the board. And so again, like CBTI is not going to help you if it's lack Mm -hmm. of opportunity. If you're like a brand new mom and you're totally sleep deprived because of that, it's not going to affect you, right? And, And unfortunately, the consequences though of short sleeping will affect you, right? Like we see even increase in type two diabetes, mm-hmm. higher risk for cardiovascular episodes, obesity, high blood pressure, just the list goes on and on, and especially memory, retaining information, being able to learn and actually store that information the next day. And it's, you know, it's, it's very disruptive. And yet our culture around sleep, especially in our country, does not reflect these really important you know, health benefits of sleep. Instead, we have a culture that says, ah, sleep when you're dead, you know, you don't make money while you sleep or all of these different sayings. And that we have a culture that pushes productivity. And the number one thing we sacrifice sleep for is paid work just to make more money, you know, and all Mm -hmm. this stuff. And unfortunately, it really has a a large effect on health and mental health. And see, do you think that like, we really need to do this reframe around sleep. Like you said about like, it it feels like we often think of it as a luxury, but we need to recognize that it's a necessity. Absolutely. I would love to like have that, you know, be really put out there. And yet schools Mm -hmm. and work and all of these things, they operate on platforms and systems that don't work for everyone. Right. Yeah. Like one example of this is that in adolescence, there's this thing called, a sleep phase delay that occurs where adolescents actually begin to their circadian clock, nothing within their control actually keeps them up later. And the hours that they want to be awake versus asleep are shifted. Mm-hmm. So they tend to stay up later, forget about all of like the extracurriculars, the homework, all of this stuff as well. And now with technology and the phones and the computers and all of that stuff, pushing a later bedtime, but school starts very early, Mm -hmm. right? And so this creates a very shortened amount of time for adolescents to sleep. And so most adolescents are actually sleep deprived in our country 
and other developed nations. And so it's really impacting mental health. And we actually can compare our, you know, adolescents to adolescents in other countries where school starts later and we see big differences in mental health outcomes. And so there's like Mm -hmm. really great agencies called like startschoollater.org, I think it is, where they actually will give you a packet. You can go bring it to your local government and try to petition to the school to start a little bit later, but causes all sorts of problems, later buses and work and nine to five, right? And not everybody's circadian clock is on a nine to five schedule. Some people are night owls or morning larks. So it's, it's really hard, really hard. What are your thoughts on naps? Is that a way to potentially make up for some of this lost sleep? Is it a good thing to implement into your day? So there's a couple of thoughts on this. So naps in general, especially from the CBTI approach, are not necessarily looked at very positively because of this thing called your sleep drive. And your sleep drive is just like an appetite for sleep. So if you were to know that dinner is going to be at 6.30 every night, but you ate a gigantic amount of appetizers at 4.30, or even a little bit of appetizers at 4.30, you're not (laughs) going to be as hungry for dinner. And so it's the very same thing with napping. If you're napping close to when bedtime would be, even within a couple of hours, you know, that appetite for sleep is not going to be as hungry because the only thing that affects that appetite for sleep is how long you last slept and how recently you last slept. So if you got a little bit of sleep a long time ago, your appetite will be higher. Um, but if you've recently gotten even a little bit of sleep, your appetite won't be as hungry, which makes falling asleep more difficult. However, like in the situation where you might have to stay awake or have to work, there are these things called safety naps, which are can be really useful. If you have to drive and you're feeling really sleepy, you can pull over, just refresh uh, the brain and the body and, and be able to continue on. Um, And of course, naps for certain age groups are definitely very appropriate and really important. And the other part of this is that there seems to be some history that we may, as humans, have been biphasic sleepers in the past, which means that we maybe used to sleep for a chunk of time, wake up, do some stuff in the middle of the night, and then go back to sleep again. And if you think about this, this is probably way before electricity got into the mix, right? Because it would get dark and you would, you know, not have too much to do and you might fall asleep and then, you know, you'd wake up tend to the fire, make sure safety things were okay, and then, you know, go back to sleep again. And so in that case, if we are biphasic, then what does that mean for our, you know, current situation where we tend to just sleep in one long, long brick? It seems like so many of our issues with sleep are because of the way that our society is structured, right? So like, talking about, you know, that there's not enough time, that like we have to get up too early, that we may even be operating in this wrong way of having one night of sleep versus mm-hmm. like those two separate chunks, like you mentioned. Because we obviously like as a, an individual can't take on these structural problems. What are some like tips to improve your personal relationship with sleep that you can implement? I would say the biggest thing, and I still struggle with this too, is like mindfulness. So understanding where the mind is in any moment and being present with that so that we can, you know, look at it even in a non-judgmental way, not like, oh, I'm doing this again. I'm the worst, you know, but just noticing like, oh, here's that thought again of laziness associated with sleep. You know, the other day I had, it was a weekend. I was feeling extra fatigued. You know, there's a lot of stress going on. Who knows why? And I was like, you know what? I would really like to sleep a little more. And I immediately noticed this 
anxiety rush, this urge for productivity. And I thought to myself, come on now, you know, what is this? Like, you have to be able to lead by example and notice this and just like give yourself the opportunity and the permission to rest. And sometimes that's what I do with my, you know, degree and everything. Mm -hmm. I'm able to give somebody the permission to say, hey, this is really important and you are allowed to prioritize it and you are allowed to make this a part of your life, right? And so it's it's a funny little (laughs) piece, but it's almost like, you know, when you hear that from a doctor or something, you're like, okay, I can do it. Yeah, it's not a superpower to be able to not sleep. People bragging about not needing sleep, like everything is so twisted. Have you ever heard of the NAP ministry? Yes, I I love them. The NAP ministry. And, and what a message, right. And a really yeah. powerful message for, you know, anti-racism and fighting, uh, white supremacy culture and all, you know, just, just so powerful and in an artistic form, it's like oh, yeah. a beautiful form, right. With these staged sleep and nap protests and things. Yeah. And I, it's so important, right. It, you know, it, it really is. I'm so glad you said that point about it kind of being like a badge of honor to not Mm -hmm. sleep, right? I think that was a quote from Brene Brown. And I love that because it is so true. I mean, how many times did I even say in grad school, oh, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. And it's like, well, okay, that means you're working hard. You have a busy social life. You're, you know, taking care of all the things you need to take care of. Good for you. She's so Mm -hmm. tired, right? Like, and it really isn't. And, um, you know, just it, it takes a while to come to terms with that. And I'm so grateful for the researchers who are doing this important work and showing how important sleep is so that we can take that information and say, hey, actually, you know, system, boss, school, (laughs) culture, whatever. Hey, look how important this is. Uh, Once again, it's capitalism's fault. (laughs) Always, right? Always. (laughs) Is there an importance in creating a routine at night to help you sleep? Absolutely. Now, I say that with a caveat because the perfectionists out there are going to be like, I have to do it this way all the time, (laughs) you know, and and I just want to give like some freedom around that. The reason that a routine is important is mostly because the body loves a schedule. Mm -hmm. We love a schedule. The circadian clock, which is our internal biological rhythm around sleep, it's constantly working for us. Like it works all day, all night. And its main job is to check whether we're supposed to be awake or asleep. It's like, (laughs) hey, like, what should Courtney be doing right now? Awake or asleep? Awake or asleep? And it's getting all of this information from the environment all the time. So if it has some sort of schedule to rely upon, it can really help the circadian clock know when to wind down, especially if there are certain behavioral cues. Like I love like a pillow spray, like I just mix some lavender oil with water spray it, you know, and that really helps my brain to behaviorally uh, anchor. If I spray it around, you know, an hour before bedtime, wow, it's time for sleep, you know, I'm getting that same cue. And it starts to help me wind down enough to to relax into sleep. Um, Because this is a funny point, but you actually don't ever try to sleep. Like I totally discourage people from trying to sleep. Sleep is a natural thing that should be coming to you as long as you've like set the table correctly to Mm -hmm. allow it to come, right? So the only thing that we can control is leading up to sleep and making sure that the signals coming to our brain are the correct signals and that the environment is right and that we're safe and that we feel totally able to allow sleep to come. So 
um, that routine is totally part of that. I love that you say that we feel safe to sleep. And I Mm -hmm. think that kind of almost speaks to our animal instincts of like, you know, one of the ways that you know if like a dog is is comfortable around you is if they're able to sleep around you. Yeah. And I think if your mind is constantly running and you feel the fear that anxiety constantly brings to you, how are you going to feel safe enough to sleep? It's so true. And it's like one of the biggest pieces because we are so vulnerable mm-hmm. when you're sleeping and especially in like the REM stages of sleep, which are the deepest stages of sleep where your brain activity is very active, but your muscle activity is very low. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, your brain is distracted, it's busy, it's cleaning, it's sorting, it's healing, it's recovering, it's doing all these things. And the body is like, basically kind of muscularly paralyzed mm-hmm. for a short time. That is so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. That is so vulnerable. So of course we need to make sure we have a safe space physically and mentally. Um, because you know, I haven't seen any saber tooth tigers wandering by my bedroom lately. That's what used to happen. Now we end up with these thoughts and that's the equivalent of saber tooth tiger. Like I'm going to lose my job. I might get COVID. Oh my gosh, all of these things. And that's like, threat to the system. So very, very important to be feeling safe. How do you work on not having those thoughts? How do you work on like calming your brain during that time or even being like, even being like, we'll deal with this in the morning kind of thing? That's what the beauty of the cognitive behavioral approach is. We dig into those. Now, your thoughts and Gabby's thoughts and my thoughts are all going to be different about sleep because we all have different lives. And not only do we all have different lives, we all have different histories. So -hmm. what I might see as like, oh, you know, lovely, beautiful day, somebody else might see as, oh my gosh, a storm is coming because the last time on a beautiful day, there was a storm. So, you know, they, there's so many different ways in which we interpret our reality and our world. Two people can have the exact same situation and have a totally different emotional response and a totally different experience of that. And that's just wild. And the only reason that that happens is because we have different thoughts. And those are based on our experiences, our like, you know, how we grew up and how we look at the world. We look at these, we, we pull them out of the mind, we lay them out, we study them and we get to know them. And then we create alternative thoughts and beliefs that counter them. And the number one thing about cognitive behavioral therapy, and the only reason it works, honestly, is because like, I can sit there all day and tell you this isn't true, or this is real or whatever if you don't have your own evidence, if you do not gather your own data to be able to see it yourself, to disprove a belief, it won't, you know, click. You'll say, Mm -hmm. I know that this, but I still feel this way, right? So in CBTI, we collect data. We collect data about sleep. We look at patterns. We plug it all into these fancy little formulas and we get averages and everything like that. We look at these beliefs and we start to become almost like the lawyer of our own mind. And we say, where's the evidence for this belief? You know, like we're putting it on trial. Is this true? Is this not true? And we come up with the data from that person's life experience. And all of a sudden we chip away at those beliefs that have been there and we start to be able to create new beliefs. And it's like a beautiful thing, right? Because if you can do that around sleep, you can do that around anything. That's kind of like the main way to do that. Do you see a lot of people kind of tackling their mental health, going to therapy, exercising? meditating and then forgetting the sleep component of it all? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so horrible, right? I believe because I'm a health psychologist that the body and mind are just always communicating. And for so many people, 
they've got everything right. The mind's right. The you know workout's right. The work life is great. Relationships are good. All is good. And then the body sends a signal and it's like, help me pay attention here. <laughs> you know, I'm over here. And, and when that happens with sleep, it's a big wake up call, you know, not unintended there, but you know, we end up seeing that a lot, a lot of really successful people, a lot of really driven people, a lot of really healthy people like that, you know, part of uh, the, the group that comes in very often just end up with the sleep being thrown off because maybe we never learned to pay attention mm-hmm. to it. Maybe we, you know, if we really think about it, it's kind of a freaky thing that we don't know how we do it anyway. So <laughs> how do we work on it when we don't even know what's happening, right? And it, it definitely shows up a lot. I was going to ask what else is in the toolkit, like routine. And then, you know, there's all these things that they say, don't look at your phone for the hour beforehand. Don't drink any water for the hour beforehand. Like what kind of things are in the, the toolkit beyond yeah. like the CBT aspect? So this is a great point. So you may have heard of the term sleep hygiene before. This is like big. And listen, I follow so many Instagrams of amazing therapists and everything now. And we got these like little sleep hygiene techniques and all these things you can do. And sleep hygiene techniques are the things like you were mentioning. So not drinking the water, don't look at the screen, don't all these little rules, right? Thing about rules is that they're great, but we have to personalize them. I think, you know, it really is dependent on somebody's life and why do we have this rule? I like mm-hmm. to know. Uh, I just would prefer to know where it comes from versus like, this is what we have to do. With those types of sleep hygiene rules, those mostly relate to the circadian clock and giving the right signals. So for example, the circadian clock is like the thing that's always checking if we're awake or asleep. And so the number one thing it's looking for is natural light um, or any type of light. And that's a really good indicator to the brain that we should be awake versus asleep. Another mm-hmm. thing that it looks for is like, are you standing up or sitting up or are you laying down, right? Because again, not really an ideal time to fall asleep when you're standing up. Doesn't work out too well, right? So laying down, standing up, the, the room temperature, the, the light, and they all go back to kind of evolutionary things. Same with eating and drinking before bed. If I'm going to get my body into this really vulnerable state where it has a lot of restoring to do and a lot of work to do, and I just ate a big meal, it's going to be really distracted because it's got to break down everything. It's got to digest everything. It's got to you know do all the enzymes and all the things that need to happen. Same thing with alcohol. That's why alcohol is really disruptive to sleep because it takes so much work to break down versus like water, right? We're distracting the body with all of these things, and we're giving it mixed signals. So let's say you have everything completely right, like you're in your room, it's cool, it's dark, and you've got all this stuff, and all of a sudden, the brain is getting massive amounts of light through the eyeballs. It's like, hold on a minute, am I supposed to sleep right now? Mm. I thought I was supposed to sleep, but now I'm getting all this light. And that's the culprit of the phone, right? And the screens. So there's reason behind all of these. Most of them have to do with the circadian clock, they're definitely not like 100% for everybody. You know, like many people can look at their phone and turn it off and go to sleep and no problem. Take it with a grain of salt. But it's mostly about getting the correct messaging to the circadian clock so that we don't give ourselves conflicting messages. And when it comes to the types of sleep, I think I can sleep a lot and then not feel rested. Why is that? (laughs) Am I not hitting (laughs) REM sleep? So, you know, it's interesting. Like there's not too many types of sleeps per se, but there's different stages of sleep. Mm. And so um, within one night, you go through many different stages of sleep multiple times. Mm. So every time you go through all of the stages, that's one cycle. 
So we've got stages that are all different as far as brain waves, body activity, muscle activity. And then we have multiples of those throughout the night in cycles. So when we're looking at cycles, the cycles actually look different. Cycle one will be different than cycle five. And part of that is the body's ability to start building up and knowing if it's safe and making sure that you know, there's enough time and space to get into REM. The body temperature is regulating throughout this time. The heart rate is regulating. And so in the first cycle, there's very little REM for an adult, but the last cycle is almost more than half REM. Mm. So if you go to sleep and you cycle through three cycles, but then your alarm goes off because you have to short sleep because you've got to wake up early for something, you're actually cutting yourself off from a lot of REM. The other thing that might be causing, you know, fatigue, and of course, like anybody who is feeling this way should definitely check with the doctor in person, just because everybody can be different. So sleep apnea could cause good amounts of uh, time for sleep, but then waking up feeling fatigue. Or for many of us, what happens is we're actually waking up in the middle of REM because oh, we think that, that. that last cycle is mostly REM. And we don't wake up just because the sun rises. I mean, some people have that beautiful romantic uh, wake up, but most of us have these jarring alarms that we set based on, again, time for work and time to do stuff and productivity. So when that jarring alarm goes off and jolts us out of a very deep sleep where our muscle activity is almost at flatlined and our brain is totally active doing something else, then you know we end up with a feeling of like very fatigued, very tired, like, oh, I can't believe I have to get up right now kind of thing. So one way to combat that, if you have a week or you have a couple of days of vacation, go to bed at the same time every night. Don't set an alarm, maybe set like a safety alarm for like an hour later and just see when your body naturally wakes up and try to get an average of like, oh, wow, every day I woke up around this time, which means I need about seven and a half hours or something like that. And then try to set your alarm based on that. Yeah. Is there a set amount of sleep? everyone needs or does it vary person to person? It does vary person to person. It definitely varies based on age as well and like mm -hmm. life cycle things that are going on. Um, so person to person, you know, you may have heard eight hours. Mm -hmm. This is something that a lot of people have this idea of. That's just because it's the average. So for adults, we actually need anywhere from, you know, seven to 10 hours. Some people can get away with as little as six some people need 10. And this also is different. Like let's say a woman who's pregnant in the first three months of pregnancy, you need closer to 10 mm -hmm. um, versus somebody later phase in pregnancy, they barely get any sleep towards the end. Um, this is like an evolutionary function getting ready for the baby to come. As you get older and older, you might sleep in different styles. So you get shorter amounts of sleep or, you know, fall asleep throughout the day a little bit more. And of course, like babies and newborns, they sleep a lot, you know, like almost koala level. And for adults, it's obviously different. Um, so yeah, the, the main reason is because a, an entire cycle of those sleep stages that we talked about is anywhere from like 90 to 110 minutes. And that's a big difference when you multiply that by five cycles throughout the night or more. So if you're a 90 minute person versus a 110 minute person, that really adds up over time. So, you know, this idea of laziness or different things for people that do need that extra amount because maybe their cycle takes longer than others, this is a problematic piece where they may end up short sleeping. How do nightmares affect things? Nightmares are so very interesting. And we don't know so, so much about them. 
Um, of course, there is like mental illness that can cause or have a symptom of like having really bad nightmares, like PTSD, for example. So that would need treatment of the PTSD itself. For other people, any type of dream or nightmare is occurring like within REM stage. So this is when your brain is really active. There's lots of different theories on why they occur and you know what's going on. Um, some theories say like, okay, this is when your brain is really active. So it's firing a lot of neurons and it's like, we love a story as a human. So we weave things together that we saw throughout the day or that were on our mind. So those, those are kind of theories around why we have nightmares. And then of course, there's all sorts of schools of thought that have a lot more meaning um, to those as well. The thing about nightmares is, some people wake up in them and then it can be really distressing and you can actually have a heightened heart rate or all of these type of physiological effects. And if that's happening, it's really helpful to soothe the system and soothe the central nervous system with some relaxation, get up, walk around, try to distract the mind, that kind of thing. A meditation could be really helpful. And then also many people wake up in the morning and they remember these dreams, their vivid dreams or their nightmares, and they feel funky throughout the day. So I always say like, you know, your wake up is just as important or should be just as important as your bedtime and, and that routine. Most of us leap out of bed at these alarms and then we get going straight to our day, like rushing, 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 chugging some caffeine on the way out the door. We don't really have the opportunity to have some mindful me time, which is, is pretty negative in the sense that A, it could cause us to feel funky throughout the day if we just had a weird dream or a nightmare when we woke up. And then B, you see this phenomenon called like sleep revenge procrastination, where at the end of the day, we torture ourselves and we say, no, I'm just going to keep scrolling or I'm just going to watch one more of those shows because I didn't have any of the day to myself, right? Like I had to give it all to work or I did it all for other yep. people and I'm so sick of it and I just need some me time, right? And so waking up early and having a lovely morning routine that is for you before anybody gets involved in your day can actually help us like prevent that sleep revenge procrastination situation later on uh, where we deprive ourselves of this like really healing sleep just so we have some time that feels like it's ours that we mm -hmm. reclaim from mm -hmm. the day. And what is that caffeine component of it all? Um, how much does that affect our sleep? It can affect it a lot. So most people have like a baseline level of their biology, like how much of an anxious person are you? How much, a, you know, uh, caffeine affects you? How much sleep are you getting? All that stuff. And we don't often think about it. We just think like one thing applies to all. Mm -hmm. And we don't often think like, okay, well, it's my body size. Like how anxious of a person am I? How, what, then how should I order my coffee? Right. And it is such a helpful thing in many ways, especially for people who are sleep deprived. So we end up combating sleep deprivation with caffeine, but then that may keep us up um, or cause us to be more anxious or cause us to be more agitated all throughout the day. And, you know, like in America, our sizes are so different than other countries. So when somebody says, oh, I just have one cup a day, I look at Gabby's drink, right? And that's probably like an extra, extra small or something. I don't know. So it's like, it's, really, a medium. <laughs> it's really important to understand so like how many ounces that is and how that affects us. And same with sugar. Sugar keeps us up, right? Like, so mm. we often intake a lot of sugar in the daytime. So what I say to people is just be mindful of your caffeine. Um, if you are having sleep problems, do an experiment, cut it out and see if that helps you. I have one person I'm thinking of who 
had a morning coffee, but then would have like an afternoon green tea or something. And just by cutting that out, they were able to fall asleep slightly faster. So being mindful of that, you know, afternoon or when you're drinking it and how much can be really important. But it's such a normalized thing. And you think about like teenagers, like you get out of school, you get on your bike, you go Mm -hmm. to Starbucks, you go to one of these coffee places, it's social, you know, it's something you can do, you get the extra loco choco maca, whatever with all the, (laughs) you know, whipped cream and all the sugar. And it's like, great. And then, you know, you're up. (laughs) But you don't really think about those consequences, because it is a social thing. Mm -hmm. And so is it safer, I would say to have it to have like a cutoff for yourself in terms of the day? Yeah. Where like, I'm not going to have caffeine after 1 p.m. Could even just yeah. be like a, a starting point. I'm right here, you guys. I can hear you. I have medication that I take for sleep. And oftentimes I feel like I'm just breaking even. Like, <laughs> like you're just, you have so much caffeine and you have this medication. We do an upper, then we take a, you know, sedative and it, it balances us out. And like, quite honestly, I, as a human, like, I always thought that I, that was just my personality, but it Mm -hmm. turns out I was sleep deprived. And now I know, like, I thought I was like, just a little bit more agitated. I had a little bit of a, you know, uh, anxiety, that kind of thing. And it turns out I was just sleep deprived. And also I don't do well with caffeine. So I decided, Hey, even though everyone that I know drinks coffee and tea and has a hot beverage in the morning or whatever, I'm going to try not doing that. And it just worked for me. I'm like energetic and anxious baseline. So, you know, you think about, yourself or you think like hey if I'm having a big day ahead or I have extra anxiety or it's a pandemic or whatever mm-hmm. is going on you just say okay let me just try an a experiment where I cut out caffeine for a while and if that hot beverage is part of your morning routine and it's something you look forward to trying decaf or exactly. trying an herbal tea so you still have that ritual but without the caffeine connected to it over yeah. my literal dead body will I have decaf <laughs> in the morning <laughs> I've had to go on and off of caffeine and it's tough because you have the, it's a withdrawal. You're addicted to it. Mm -hmm. But once you get past that part, it gets easier. But I I did, I think of everything. I missed the routine of having a beverage in the morning Mm -hmm. more than the caffeine itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Can I ask you a question that will cause breakups? Yeah. So uh, is it better to sleep alone or to sleep with someone and like how we've normalized sleeping in a bed together, but like maybe that is not good for people? It's definitely not ideal for everyone, right? And so some people feel safer. And and what I mean by that is not like, you know, that they're in any type of like bodily danger or anything like that, but they just feel like they can be more relaxed and more themselves if they're sleeping separately than somebody else. There's also this thing that can happen if one partner has insomnia and the other doesn't is like this sleep envy of like, oh my God, you fell asleep before me. Now I'm never going to fall asleep. And it can be really stressful and add stress. Do whatever works for you as a human, as a couple, you know, in whatever relationship or sleeping situation you're in and try different things. And I always say that, like, just try experiments and see how they go. If sleeping alone feels better, that's great. If sleeping with somebody feels really good, but you're not able to do it, that's something you could work through in CBTI. You know, you want to like get in touch with like your own values and what feels good to you. Mm-hmm. My partner's not going to let me sleep in another room. <laughs> I got, I got me, I got my partner. I got a tiny black chihuahua. It's a oh nightmare. Gosh, so <laughs> it's very cute. The dog takes up, I would say 90% of the bed and he's about 15 pounds. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I I don't sleep is something that's so elusive to me. I feel like I wake up very quickly. Like there could be a car backfiring like four towns away and it'll wake me. And I know that it's it's something that has to be worked on. And I think a lot of that was, like you said, unpacking productivity culture, mm-hmm. unpacking that mm-hmm. like you've missed something, FOMO, you've like, you know, you're not doing as much work as like you're, you're not fulfilling your potential. Yeah. And so there's a lot of stuff that you have to like unpack. But also, am I imagining this like perfection level of perfection where it's like a beautiful white bed and everything and there's a white noise machine (laughs) and your eyes are covered with like a silk face mask like am I just idealizing this thing that like is not reachable so I was just gonna say like give yourself a hug and thank yourself (laughs) for waking up because of that backfiring car four towns over (laughs) because this is our natural ability to keep ourselves safe it is incredible to me I mean truly incredible like how our bodies work that we could fall asleep to like a war movie if that's what you're into and you watch it and there's all this stuff and you fall asleep on your couch but if somebody turns your doorknob in your bedroom you wake up and that Mm -hmm. is our internal safety mechanism so yours is working yes that is awesome right and the other part of this is that after you wake up and it's very normal to wake up throughout the night especially after REM think about it you've just been basically paralyzed for a while you may have you ever had that situation where you lay on your arm and it's all numb and you mm-hmm. don't know, you know, you can't move it and all this stuff. The reason we wake up after REM is because we need to check. We need to check to make sure we're safe. If we need to, you know, use the restroom, if we're hungry, is it still light out? This is our internal kind of alarm clock checking ability. So, you know, pre-alarm clocks, this was how we got through with this arousal drive, which is what you're talking about which signals to us like, hey, turn on the fight or flight system, we might not be safe. And then also waking up throughout the night. So these are very normal. There is no one in the world who sleeps straight through the night and does not wake up. They may not remember waking up because it doesn't have meaning, but they do wake up. And if you videotape, and you can even look these up, like people sleeping, they turn all different positions throughout the night. And sometimes couples are like in sync as they're doing that. And this is because you're actually waking up slightly, you know, coming up to a little bit level of consciousness to make sure you're comfortable and safe. Definitely this unrealistic thing. And a lot of that picture that you painted is like so much consumerism, like the the industry around sleep is a multi-billion dollar industry. Get this, this will help you get these eye masks and these pills and these fluffy blankets and these satin pajamas and all of these things like, which are super nice but you do not need them. We have slept on rocks as humans. We have slept on trees. We don't even need a roof over our head, right? And we've been able to do it. So um, yes and no, right? Like very normal and thank yourself for having these great internal built-in mechanisms that help keep you safe. Thank you so much. I think that this was so illuminating and proves how a lot of our issues with sleep are internal and about our thinking about sleep, the narratives we tell ourselves about sleep. And Gabby, I can't wait um, for you to sign up for CBTI. <laughs> I, I should. And also like how you ended it with talking about the industry. Once again, capitalism is the villain. Uh, stick around after the break. We'll be answering three questions. Welcome back to 
just between us, it's time for three questions. So, Courtney, we love to kind of get into the mind of mental health professionals in terms of their own relationship with mental health, because I think that can be really helpful for people to recognize that the struggle is real and it's kind of an ongoing journey. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So the first question we wanted to ask is, is what is something that you wish you knew about mental health when you were younger? Okay, like, you know, my answer here, because this is like NYC sleep doc, I have to go with that sleep is such a priority and that I should have been prioritizing that instead of like, waking up early to pick out my outfit for high school, you know, it's just <laughs> really um, such an important thing. And I, you know, mentioned this earlier, but I honestly thought that I had a different personality than I did for all of the years that I was in school because I was always short sleeping. I was always sleep deprived. 20 years of school, cumulatively of grad school and everything like that. I always prioritized what needed to be done, all the work that needed to be done and still trying to have a life. And if I could go back, I would definitely improve my relationship with sleep as a younger person. I think the lack of sleep can lead to so much unnecessary stress, anxiety, emotional lability, all of these types of things that you think are like something wrong with you, but really they can be remedied just by getting some sleep that's needed. That's so hopeful. I think, you know, that like, oh, I can target this one specific thing that I can work on that will make my life overall better. Um, Sometimes we overcomplicate things. (laughs) Right. Because we don't understand it. And so the second question is, what is something that you actively implement into your daily mental health care? Definitely sleep, but also normalizing things. Because I think like I was trained this way. This is how I'm trained. This is how um, medical doctors are trained that like, problematizing and fixing the problem is the key to everything. And what I really implement is like normalizing things and and just looking at the human side of things and, you know, trying to help other people and my clients navigate what can be a really difficult world, a really difficult time and focus on like strengths instead of problems. And, you know, to me, it's like only a problem if you tell me it's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if it's interfering in your life in a way that's causing you undue stress or you know, difficulty, then that's worth it to work on, right? If it isn't, and this is just something that is maybe a part of how your life has to be during this cycle or this time, then really normalizing that and understanding that. And so I try to practice that and looking at things through like a lens of self-compassion and then also, you know, making sure that I'm giving myself enough opportunity for sleep because I'm definitely guilty of the FOMO and all the things going on. There's like so much going on in the world. It's like we can consume news and social media endlessly. And so having some boundaries around that is something I implement now. I love that. I love self-compassion. Can't endorse it enough. (laughs) Uh, And then our final question is, what is something that you're still working on implementing into your mental health care that might be, you know, you need to do, but it's been a little trickier. This for me is mindfulness. And Mm. I am constantly too far ahead into the future, whether it's worrying or trying to make sure I have everything straight of all the tasks that I have to do, or just planning something fun. But it, it has robbed me, I think, of moments. And I mm-hmm. look back and I realize that those moments that I spent worrying, it, those were the important moments, like, you know, <laughs> in that phase. And it's like, oh, it's so kind of sad to realize. So something that I trying to do is, is be more present 
And when I'm in something, really try to do that. And that's one of the things I love and so appreciate about my job and makes it like even more of a privilege than I already know it is that when I'm sitting with somebody and I'm hearing their story and they are sharing that with me, I am a hundred percent in the moment. And that is like such a beautiful thing. And it helps me practice that too, but it's very hard. You know, one of the famous mindfulness instructors always says this funny thing of like, who are you bringing with you into the shower? And it's very provocative, but it's so true. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, I'm in the shower and I'm not even present. I'm like in my meeting ahead, like in two hours, I've got 14 people here with me. That I'm worried <laughs> about. So I try to remember that and implement that, but it takes a, a real constant practice. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on that as well. I lose time in the shower where I'll be like, I, I'm so in my head that I don't even remember if I've washed my hair yet. And like, that's when I recognize that I'm like, oh, I need to get back into this moment. I need to check back in with reality. I'm working on like being grateful for the thing that is currently happening and not thinking about what it is going to be. Because I'm like, there's no time. You were saying like, those were the moments. Like I wasn't even grateful. I wasn't even happy about the thing that was happening at the time it was happening. Like I'm so lucky. Why am I so freaked out? Now I need to finish this entire thing of coffee and wonder why I'm so freaked out all the time. Like gratitude is such a good antidote, right? To worry and to stress. And that's something that I always have people practice either waking up and doing a gratitude practice or going as you go to sleep doing a gratitude practice because it, it A, brings you into the moment and B, it's such a wonderful way to kind of like take the flashlight of the mind and focus it on something else that's really positive and that you can marinate in instead of worry, you know? Thank you for sharing all of this with us. I know that it's going to be so helpful and illuminating for a lot of people, um, including my mother, who I'm I'm going to try to refer to you. Uh, oh, I might, I'm going to fully email you. I need help. Before we let you go, we like to end the podcast by forcing our guests to rate their experience on the podcast. Did you have fun? Do you have any tips for us? Um, if you want to create your own rating scale, we love that. <laughs> Uh, five out of five stars would totally come back. Love talking to both of you. I think it's just such an amazing thing. And I'm so grateful to you that you are helping to spread the word around sleep. Like this is my mission. Once I learned about it, like I said, I wanted to scream about it from the rooftops. And so thank <laughs> you for allowing me to come onto your platform to do that. Um, and it's just really, really wonderful. So thank you for sharing that with everyone. Well, thank you oh, for thank everything you for you're doing. Here. And and how can people find out more about what you're doing and follow you? Yeah, so I'm trying to, you know, put more out on Instagram in the form of videos, even though it totally freaks me out. So I'm doing it. And <laughs> I'm uh, going to be on there as NYC Sleep Doc. You can find me on Instagram and I'm starting up a TikTok. So we'll see how <gasps> that goes. I am not, you know, I'm still learning how to even work it. And then, you know, if you have any questions, you can always look at my website. It's www.drcourtneybancroft.com. Lots of info there about CBTI, what it is and finding providers. And I'm an available provider in New York. So most of us are licensed by state. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. We really appreciate it. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Monts. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam. 
or youtube.com slash just between us show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. And at JBU Podcast on Instagram and at Allison Raskin and at Emotional Support Lady on Instagram and at Gabby Road and at BWM Pod on Instagram. That's where you can find us, all of us. Also, we never plug Melissa's Instagram, our producer, Melissa, Melissa D. Mots, and hers is She Is Not Melissa, and you should go look at it. Forever. Dog. <laughs>